Hello everyone and welcome back to our podcast. We're glad that you can join us here in our final episode of, of this quarter, our third season of Sabbath School from Home, where we discuss education and the role it plays in the Christian life. And uh, we've got a great topic for discussion today. Uh, I'm so glad that you can join us. My name's Cameron. I'm recording from Launceston, Tasmania. And I'm Luke and I'm recording from Sydney, Australia. And I'm Lachlan, recording from a newly hacked together makeshift studio in my new dwelling after having moved house this week. Yeah, well, what an exhausting week that would be. Like, I've done enough house moving to uh, to uh, know what it's like. And Luke, you're in the middle of it too, but yours is international. Yes, well, mine's, my house moving has been going on for about uh, five months now. So it'll be nice. it'll be nice to have that finally finished. Ken can't join us for the recording today. He's on a holiday with his family in Queensland, and uh, I hope he's he's having fun up there. I'm sure he is. Uh, we will have a discussion without him, and uh, in as much as this is a, a discussion, a series of discussions on education, and uh, the topic this week brought a couple of books to mind, especially for Luke and I. The topic is heaven and education, eternal learning, and uh, that made us think of a couple of books. So we're going to run this this discussion a bit more along the lines of a of a book review. Uh, Luke, do you want to kick us off, perhaps, with uh, one of the books that you thought of? Uh, certainly I will. So it's not so much a book as a short story, which, of course, makes it very convenient to read. It's written by J.R.R. Tolkien um, of Lord of the Rings fame. Uh, who was, of course, Catholic uh, and a good friend of C.S. Lewis, who's another very famous Christian writer. Um, and it's called Leaf by Niggle. And it is the story of a man called Niggle and what happens to him uh, when he goes on a long journey at the end of his life. That is to say, he dies. Luke, is this story in the public domain? I'm not sure that it is, Cam, uh, but you can definitely get it quite cheaply online these days um and it's well worth whatever price you're being charged for it in my opinion um so it is a story about a little man um called niggle um who is a painter um and he really likes painting though he's not very good at it and he has a really big painting that he spent many years working on in his backyard just as his sort of passion project but he dies before he can finish it and his painting is taken and it's used to repair somebody else's house um, and he never got to finish it and then the story the real story is about what happens after he died um, and it turns out that his painting was maybe a, a little bit more valuable than it had seemed to be in the living world it's a very nice story it's a very touching story it's a story that is I think, wonderfully illustrative of the character of eternal, you know, uh, eternal life is a difficult concept to ponder. You know, the the stereotype that is gone to uh, when you're wanting to portray it negatively is sitting on a cloud singing hymns forever. It's a great story by Mark Twain, a short story. Captain Stormfield Goes to Heaven, I think it's called. Uh, which which explores exactly some of those silly, uh, they're not silly necessarily, but um, 
you know, what would it be like to be sitting on a cloud playing a harp forever? Yeah, it, it, I mean, it, it is it is a lazy way of thinking about it that is almost um, certainly not what eternity, any form of eternity, would actually be like. Um, but I think this short story does a really wonderful job of portraying, if not specific details, because how could you? But the the metaphysical experience of of being a a a a not very important and less than perfect individual who nevertheless creates something that ends up being of tremendous value in in the eternity the place he ends up traveling to is the land depicted in his picture isn't it Luke? It, well exactly right it it when when he finally gets to what is is fairly obviously heaven or the start of heaven or or the the foothills of heaven a part of heaven it is his tree as he imagined it um not as he was actually able to draw it or paint it rather but as he wanted to paint it and tried to paint it and then he gets he gets to this point in his journey and he finds the actual reality of what he saw in his mind and did his best to to represent um, through art, you know. Um, and then the story sort of ends with this this painting of his in its in its true full reality becoming a sort of a, a part of heaven that is of particular value to people when they first arrive there. And so it's, it's, it's a really... We've, we've sort of hinted at it for weeks on the podcast, talking about what sort of spiritual value is there in artistic expression. Um, and this story is also a really great example of that because it, it, it illustrates the idea of, of you know, this passionate pursuit of art being about seeing and trying to represent truth you know, and all truth is, is of God. So as, as an artist who's sort of seeking for the truth, they're struggling to realize it on the paper. Um, and maybe they're not even doing a very good job. Maybe they're not even a very good artist. But the story sort of makes the point that in the eternal scheme of things, maybe that isn't the important part. The important part is what are the glimpses of truth that they were illustrating. So it's a really wonderful story, very short, but very layered, very meaningful, some wonderful imagery of heaven. He has, Tolkien has exactly the same view of heaven that C.S. Lewis uses in some of his stories of these sort of eternal mountain ranges that just keep getting higher and higher and bigger and bigger and, and a place that becomes more and more real the further you move into it. Mm. Um, but it's not somewhere where you go to. It's somewhere where you will keep going to. Yes, keep traveling towards. It's it's not a, a destination, um, which is yeah, the that's, sort of simple way of thinking of it. That's a really critical point in the context of having having spent a quarter of a year thinking about education. Um, you know, a lot of education these days is is also trying to transition from a you know assign a degree that's it done learning through to a university degree being preparation for a life of learning. And I think that the, 
sometimes we make the mistake when we think about heaven as being a place, you know, I've heard people say, oh, well, can't wait to get to heaven because then I'll know all the answers to whatever difficult question is being discussed. And I somehow feel that it would be quite unfulfilling if I just simply knew all the answers straight away. What's worse, Locke, is that uh, is that some people tell me that when I get to heaven, I'll be able to fly. I find that very disappointing because I actually really enjoy the challenge of piloting an aircraft. <laughs> yeah, I mean, these these things highlight this idea uh, that, Luke, you're, you're drawing from this book and comparing it to... In, I'm, I'm hearing your, your comparison bring to mind the last battle, the final of the Narnia it's series exactly of books. exactly the comparison um, that I was thinking of. Yeah, the, the idea of heaven being a place of continual journeying to things that are even more real, to the degree of being more real that they make what has come before seem like a sort of almost a dream. And and that's not just not just saying that in the afterlife our current life seems like a dream, but in the afterlife, earlier stages of the afterlife seem, by comparison, to be a dream. That speaks of of a learning, of a development, of understanding, of a of a journey, of a quest. And I like that because it's one of the things that gives this life meaning. It would be a really pointless and futile thing if we were programmed to quest and learn and seek in this life, only to have all of those desires vanish or be unfulfilled in the afterlife. I also like the picture you painted, Luke, of, of an inadequate artist trying to grasp, trying, to, trying to, to put down on some tangible form a painting or a sculpture or a, or a dance or a song, uh, trying to capture the essence of some, something which they regard as eternal, it's something which they regard as the real thing. Uh, something that's full of meaning, and uh, it's sometimes not always. Uh, it feels so fleeting and intangible, but it it is the real thing anyway. There's that story, isn't there, of the famous ballerina who was once asked after a performance uh, by by a fan, met her afterwards, and said that they had very much enjoyed the the dancing, but could they could she please explain what it meant? And the ballerina said uh, that if she could say it, she wouldn't have danced it. Yeah. We, we've sort of made jokes about ignoring the arts in this episode. Um, but it is an oversight we share with a, a lot of Adventism. And the idea that art at its best is trying to access something of, of the eternal. When we are in heaven, one of the things we'll be doing is making art. Like almost certainly, it, ha- it has to be the case. Exploring beauty exploring ideas, uh, creating. God made us in his image and he is, he is someone who obviously delights in creation. Whether or not education in the arts is useful seems to me perhaps a bit of an irrelevant question. Mm. Well, is it is it meaningful? The whole idea of does a thing have practical utility, if no, then it is of no value, is not a particularly Christian concept. There's, there's nothing in the teachings of Christ about utilitarianism. Value is found in, in spiritual truth. It's not found in, you know, how many houses you can build out of it. You know, how much money it makes you. He actually scolds the Pharisees for treating him in a utilitarian fashion. They come after him after he's fed the 5,000 and they say, give us a sign. Give us a sign. Another sign. 
And Christ says to them, look, all you want is another free lunch. Don't, don't you understand what that whole feeding the 5,000 was about? It was meant to teach you something. Mm. I'm not here. I'm not just going to solve food supply crisis. There's something deeper going on. And he actually resented people trying to use him in practical ways, even though I'm sure some of these people were well-intentioned. You know, it's interesting, Luke, when you were talking about this idea expressed in the short story uh, you've mentioned, Leaf by Neil, the idea of an artist uh, entering into the reality of his dream and finding it to be the real thing. Uh, I didn't immediately think, and you referred to C.S. Lewis, I didn't immediately think of the Nani series. I actually thought of a, of a different C.S. Lewis book, which I happen to have on the shelf in front of me, so I've got it down. It's one I referred to last week, which is uh, Pilgrim's Regress. And I'd, I might take the time, I'll make sure I don't go more than five minutes or so, um, to read some excerpts from the opening chapter. Um Pilgrim's Regress is about a character, John, and it's an allegory. And it's like Pilgrim's Progress, except that John grows up in the church. And as a young child, uh, John uh, was made one day to dress in the ugliest clothes that he'd ever worn. And these clothes caught him under the chin and were tight under the arms. And they made him itch all over. And his father and mother took him along a road, one holding him by each hand, which was very uncomfortable and very unnecessary. And they told him they were taking him to see the steward. And the steward was the representative of the landlord. The steward is, is representative of a church figure here. And the landlord is, is God. And uh, the steward is looking after the tenants, who are all the people. And uh, he's representing the, the landlord uh, to the tenants. Uh, so this is a picture of, of John as a child encountering his first religious experience. They go into a hall... And his mother and father told him that the steward would be very angry if he did not sit absolutely still and be very good. And John was beginning to be afraid, so he sat still in the high chair with his feet dangling and his clothes itching all over him and his eyes staring out of his head. And after a long time, his parents came back looking as if they'd been with the doctor very grave. Then they said that John must go and see the steward too. And when John went into the room, there was an old man with a red, round face who was very kind and full of jokes, so that John quite got over his fears, and they had a good talk about fishing tackle and bicycles. But just when the talk was at its best, the steward got up and cleared his throat. He then took down a mask from the wall with a long white beard attached to it and suddenly slapped it on his face so that his appearance was awful. And he said, Now I'm going to talk to you about the landlord. The landlord owns all the country. It is very, very kind of him to allow us to live on it at all. Very, very kind. And he went on repeating this in a queer sing-song voice, so long that John would have laughed, but he was beginning to be frightened again. The steward then took down from a peg a big card with small print all over it, and he said, here's a list of the things the landlord says you must not do. You'd better look at it. I hope, said the steward, you have not broken any of the rules already. John's heart began to thump, and his eyes bulged more and more, and he was at his wit's end when the steward took off the mask and looked at John with his real face and said, better tell a lie, old chap, better tell a lie, easiest for all concerned, and popped the mask on his face all in a flash. John gulped and said, uh, Oh, no, sir. Well, that's just as well, said the steward through the mask, because, you know, if you did break any of them and the landlord got to know of it, do you know what he'd do to you? He'd take you and shut you up forever in a black hole full of snakes and scorpions as large as lobsters, forever and ever. And besides that, he is such a kind, good man, so very, very kind, that I'm sure you would never want to displease him. Oh, no, sir, said John. Uh, and then I'll just skip a bit. Uh... 
they had a good amount of talk after that. It all ended, all the, all the conversations ended with pointing out that the landlord was quite extraordinarily kind and good to his tenants and would certainly torture most of them to death the moment he had the slightest pretext. That's as John's encounter of religion. In the second chapter, John encounters a vision of, of he sees an island and he hears singing from the island and it, it sweeps him off his feet. His soul is entranced by it. It's a longing. It's a sweet longing. It's desire at its, at its best, most purest. And, and when the singing ends and when he loses the vision of the island, he, he, longs, he longs to see it again. And after a time, he longs just to feel the longing again as the memory of it fades. And he, he goes on a great quest hunting for this. And he, he, he abandons his home and he abandons the stewards and he disbelieves in the landlord and he goes off on a, on a search for his own sweet, sweet desire. And in the uh, west, I think it is, is the landlord's mountains with a ditch. And you have to, to get to the landlord's mountains, you have to cross the ditch, which is an analogy of death when every now and then a tenant is told he has to cross the, the creek and climb the mountain. And uh, he decides he's going to walk in the other direction. He goes walking off to the east where he's seen this vision of, of his island. And he, he encounters all sorts of philosophies and ideas and he grows and challenges. And after the whole book, which you should read, he eventually gets to the uttermost point east where he discovers that the island of his sweet longing, uh, of, of, the, of the overpowering desire, is actually the backside of the landlord's mountains and he's he's walked around around the world and he eventually finds that the only path to his island is to go back home and to cross the the creek and to climb the landlord's mountains mm. but it's very much this idea that that John discovers in the landlord John discovers when he returns to a faith. It's a very different faith to the one he was exposed to as a child. And he discovers that in it is the real thing. The, the beauty that is so great, it almost hurts. It almost hurts to look at it or to think about it. But it hurts much more to not think about it. That this, this overpowering desire uh, and longing and sweetness and wonder and ecstasy is actually the thing that's waiting for him in in heaven i think that's quite beautiful cam and it's it's i find um helpful to just remember that c.s lewis himself was a an adult convert to christianity and to faith a, a very reluctant one as he himself describes the process i think he he really exhausted all as he saw it all his other options before before coming to it but i i really like that idea which is alluded to in that story and which c.s lewis also puts in some of his other stories and which is in tolkien's story here as well that we're talking about this idea that anything which is a which is good comes from god which is self-evidently true if you're of christian faith all good things must come from god by definition um therefore Anyone who is pursuing something good, even if they don't know or they don't admit or they don't believe it's from God, is in fact pursuing God in some way. Um, and this is where you see the value of, of 
art. This is where you see the use of of artistic expression. You know, we're starting to get into Christian morality now, which is not at all a bad direction to go. One of the things that I think all of these stories that we've talked about today, including that one, can really sort of illustrate is that is that for a Christian, nothing is futile that is meaningful. If it has meaning, it is not futile. Even if, as far as anyone can see in the world, it is entirely without useful effect. It doesn't achieve its goal. It's, it's a lost cause. It's impossible to do. But we don't see all ends and possibilities. Um, and we don't know what meaning things have outside of our perceptions. You know, if it is meaningful, it is not futile, no matter how futile it looks. And there's a, there's a whole lot of implications for that, um, for, you know, how as a Christian you should, we should live our lives. Um, that is maybe for a different podcast. Your comments, Luke, made me remember a book I'd read. Um, it's a collection of editorials by Philip Yancey, and it's called I Was Just Wondering. And in it, one of the things he talks about is is art. And he talks about the poet T.S. Eliot, who was another adult convert to Christianity as Lewis. And T.S. Eliot was respected in his day as being a gifted poet. And then he went and became a Christian, and he stopped writing poetry, and he wrote useful things. He wrote church plays. He wrote you know, commentaries on religious themes. He did religious stuff. It was useful to the church. And later in his life, he returned to writing poetry. And Philip Yancey's comment on this, uh, on T.S. Eliot's life was, no one remembers his church plays. You can hardly find them. But his poetry's lasted, and some of the poetry he wrote uh, post-conversion later in life is some of his most famous works. And uh, and it's not particularly relevant to the to the topic of heaven, uh, but it's an interesting poem. It is very relevant to the topic of Christmas. There's a T.S. Eliot poem, "The Journey of the Magi," which is which is fantastic. It's a really good poem. But it but it's his art that's remembered. His art is the thing that will remain of eternal significance, and the utilitarian stuff he did has just turned out to be less useful in promoting the Christian cause. I, I think part of it might be that, you know, with our very limited perspectives, we don't really know what's useful. Um, coming back to Leaf by Niggle, there's there's quite a lot of the, the beginning and the end of the story is devoted to making it very clear that nobody thinks anything of this guy's painting. It's not considered to be of any value at all in in the quote-unquote real world. They can't see it. But but its real value is in fact immense. Uh, he, he doesn't see it either. He it, It's very, you know, he considers the painting to be very important to him, but he, he doesn't think it's a significant thing at all. Uh, he, he only comes to that realisation much later on in the story. This... This highlights an interesting thought that's occurring to me as you're talking about 
things having value um, and and sometimes that that value and significance is not aligned with its obvious utility utility but also as you're talking about things becoming more apparent you know in these in these books in these allegories in these parables even in the parable of the rich man and lazarus uh, that jesus tells there's a profound adjustment of values by the by the person in the story remember who cries out for for something to be done and a message to be sent back to his still living uh, brothers so this this speaks of the kind of education that is often associated with heaven and with eternity and the afterlife this this being educated in what really matters in the things of significance and i would like to throw in a curly one here um some christian traditions have a fairly vivid picture of a thing called purgatory uh, which as the name suggests is connected to purging and is often in these traditions upheld as a as a the concept is one of purging residual sin before being allowed to enter into complete glorification in, into heaven and adventists fairly roundly reject this kind of idea on the basis of being convinced that god's grace is sufficient and god's love is abounding and so it's not very sensible to have this picture of purgatory where some sort of arbitrary debt if you like needs to be repaid but what about reimagining purgatory purgatory being purging us of the values and priorities that we mistakenly held in this life in order to make us a more aligned with the world and the life and the access to god that comes in eternity and in, in other words purgatory being a kind of a learning process not a punishing process and if you start to think about those lines then then maybe that process is sort of ongoing for eternity which does again make the whole idea sound a bit less useful um is all of heaven just a just an ongoing purgatory i hope that it's clear that i'm not talking about it in a in a punitive sense but i think there's some real and i'm not i'm not the person to first have this idea i know that uh john polkinghorn has written along these lines uh him himself and he's very wise this idea of of there being profound difference between the life we experience with with um temporal transience and the life hereafter of eternity um and there needing to be some adjustment some learning some recalibration there's some aspects of purgatory lock that i i do like i had a discussion with someone the other day at launceston church and they were a bit concerned about continuity um so, for instance, my wife has no hesitation in saying that I am the same person today. It's me, right? She she wakes up and she says, oh, that's my husband. And she recognizes in the me of today the same person as the me of yesterday. There's a continuity there. But if if we pull out pictures of myself at age four, or she sees some home video, or she hears anecdotes from you know my childhood... It's less obvious that the person they're describing is me. And the person they're describing is less like me. And uh, it's, an, it's an interesting thought. Uh, it's an interesting thought. 
there's incremental changes day to day, but there's some quite large changes in ourselves. Mm. And this person was describing, you know, what happens if such a radical change is needed? It was actually in a separate context, but um, but what happens if so much change is needed before I'm fit for paradise that I'm not me? And the idea of, of I think this is that concern is the is the concern that the concept of purgatory is trying to address. This may be a little off to the side, but I was I was recently asked in a job interview um, whether or not I liked change, and without thinking about it, without hesitating at all. In fact, I think I rushed the response uncharacteristically because I'd been very thoughtful up to that point. I said, yeah, absolutely. Of course I like change. But change is an opportunity for improvement. And I didn't realize until I was asked the question just how much I had come to value the opportunity for change. So this is very like what you're talking about. If you consider if you consider the concept of purgatory to be an, an, an opportunity for change for the better, it, it becomes much less of a, as you said, Locke, a punitive concept and much more of a learning one. I guess, I guess the traditional Adventist response would be to say that we've already had opportunities for change in this life. And... And if you've forsaken all those, you know, there has to come a, at some point there's a line in the sand about whether, you, whether you're in or out. And I think that that sort of the graying of that line is the thing that you don't gray a line. What do you do to a line? The Draw. The, the stre- spreading, but you're sort of removing the line. You're turning it into a fuzzy gray zone um, with purgatory instead of having a sort of a sharp demarcation about it at this point in time, it has then been decided who will be in and out. Well, we Adventists do like the certainty of very clean lines. I think it goes hand in hand, though, with what we alluded to earlier, with this with this very common sort of just assumption almost. Often people haven't stopped to think about it very hard. This assumption that somehow we'll instantaneously be changed, we'll be able to fly, or we'll, we'll know the answer to science's most puzzling questions, or whatever it is, we'll just know them all straight away, or at least be able to ask and find out the answer with very little effort. That seems to be implied in a lot of people's picture. If that's the case, then the thing I will be in heaven is not very much like me. Well, mm. yes, that, that's what I'm saying. That, the, that kind of picture of heaven is consistent with a, with a, um, with a minimization of the transition involved, and, and therefore it's very easy to understand why purgatory can be dismissed and not thought about and i'm not i'm not really suggesting that we reinstate purgatory as conventionally described you know in various christian traditions but i am i am raising it as a bit of a vehicle to through which to to think about what education and learning in heaven might mean because I actually think that it that it may mean substantial readjustment. I, I think about this historically. You don't have to go that many generations back, and I can think in my family of just a few generations back, where I can think of people who held very firm, very strong deci- beliefs. Uh, let's just pick one issue, like the wearing of wedding rings. Adventists didn't used to do it, and it was it was it was very frowned upon. It was considered to be 
quite a significant issue. Adventists today, by and large, around the world do wear wedding rings. And in fact, quite a lot of them argue pretty passionately that the wearing of a wedding ring in a society that seems increasingly intent on devaluing marriage is actually a protest action, affirmative protest action in and of itself. So there you go, a big change on a small issue. Uh, but imagine that you were the Adventist a hundred years ago and you passed away and your next experience is entering the afterlife and seeing a whole lot of people who are wearing wedding rings. That, that would require, that will require some adjustment some reevaluation of things that you held very strongly. And I'm picking on that historically to highlight that we need to have the same humility ourselves. We can't pick it. But if time lasts, four generations into the future, we'll look back on some of our actions and attitudes and values and we'll struggle to see how they are important or consistent with the message of Jesus. More seriously, we will seriously doubt whether they equip us well for heaven. Yeah. Like, people in the future will look at us now and they'll say, well, that, that just what it's a bit like when you read the Apostle Paul um, seeming to affirm the institution of slavery. I know you can contextualise it and you can explain that he was fairly progressive for his time and all the rest of it, but just it is just a bit uncomfortable reading some of those bits. And you think, well, those attitudes didn't really set him up well for eternity. So something interesting here comes. So co coming back to the idea of, you know, not, not changing into something that isn't yourself. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it seems like you feel this is a bit of an uncomfortable or an unusual concept. Would, would that be fair? Yeah, the, uh, yeah. Um, at least the person I was talking to was suggesting that they would want to see some continuity. They imagined, maybe maybe this will not be the case, but they imagined themselves in heaven looking back and they'd like to see some continuity between their life on earth and their life in heaven. Well, surely the... the to sort of have confidence that they're still them in, in an essential sense. Well, I mean, but I would, I would suggest that change is the continuity the the normal state of a person is to be constantly changing. Why do you want to have confidence that you're still you? You, you aren't. You're, you're nothing, not even a single cell of you is the same as it was 20 years ago. Why do you think you should be the same as, as you were before? Surely that's the unusual concept because all of our lived experience is of constant change. And surely one of the central tenets of Scripture is that none of us are yet our true selves. That that it's a mistake to look at myself today and say, oh, well, this is who, this is who I really am. And the child, the five-year-old me, was just a mere stepping stone to this point. Because we always sort of do have that feeling, don't we? We sort of subconsciously feel like we've arrived in terms of our personality and and who we are. It's it's in the A.A. Milne poem. When I was one, I'd just begun. When I was two, I was just brand new. When I was three, I was hardly me. When I was four, I was not much more. When I was five, I was just a life. But now I'm six. I'm as clever as clever. I think I'll stay six now forever and ever. Mm. Yeah. Of course, the poem was written by a six-year-old. Uh... Of course, it was written by a six-year-old. <laughs> and, and we all imagine ourselves, we all imagine ourselves to be 
in an in an essential sense, whoever we happen to be just at this moment. Well, we we can't be anything but, else. We can't be ourselves yeah, but, no, in but, the past. But one of the points one of the points of of scripture and one of the points of our discussion is that, in point of fact, who we are right now is not the final product either. We we are just uh, a stepping stone on the way to something else. Mm. And and the particularly coming from an evangelical tradition, we we hold that the choices we make can have quite a substantial impact on the sort of person we're becoming. Coming back to the rich man and Lazarus lock, the the whole point of that parable is that Christ is identifying for the Pharisees and the rulers of his time. It is possible, and you may have already done it. Be very careful. It's possible to turn yourself into the sort of person where no amount of intervention by God can reach you. Mm. So, Cam, I would I would agree with everything you said, uh, except for the word just. Just a stepping stone. Stepping stones are very important. If you take one out, you can't cross the river without getting wet. You know, just just because we are in transition doesn't make the present unimportant which i don't think is what you're implying but the mm. you know the semantics are important you know the yeah. this precise meaning of words yeah. there's there's nothing just about our our experiences now that's a very adventist um belief that you know our, yeah. our lives which we're, we're living so at the moment are very important spiritually we're not so much a stepping stone as a fork in the road at ev- every moment of every day the the small choices we make have huge impacts in about where we end up i don't know maybe that's being a bit too dramatic um we've referred a lot to in uh, previous discussions to to c.s lewis's the great divorce where he it's not so much purgatory that he's talking about uh but everyone everyone gets sent to this place it is very dim and dark it's a sunset and and um in this place you can have whatever you want without effort but it just doesn't work so you can have a house as big as you want but it doesn't keep the rain out and it's always raining and it's not satisfying because you can just get it straight away without trying and there's a bus a weekly bus from this place if you don't like it to go to another place which is the heaven in the in the um sort of analogy when you get to heaven, there's also dim light, but it's the light of sunrise, and things are getting brighter. and And you hop off the bus, and you discover that you you are insufficiently real to be able to even access this place. People are transparent, like ghosts, because they're not real enough to. And and they can then the grass hurts their feet because the grass is so much more real than them. And the idea is that the longer you stay in this place, the more real you become. And it is, it's heaven and it's real adventure and it's real challenge and it's real learning. And, uh, and basically what's happening is that there's a bus, a weekly bus from hell to heaven and anyone who wants to stay can. And nearly everyone on the bus turns around uh, because, of, because of various factors. And uh, one of the factors that influences one of the people to turn around, which I think I've talked about on a previous discussion, is that he's he's disappointed at arriving at heaven. He's a theologian, and he's very disappointed that in heaven he is not regarded as an expert because because who needs theologians in heaven? 
Hmm. Uh, and so he hops on the bus to go back to hell where he, where he has a really good Bible study group running uh, because he, he, he does not want to be a student again. He wants to be the teacher. I think... I think that's a, a really excellent summary of not just this week's episode, but actually sort of the point of spending a quarter of a year looking at and exploring education. I think that learning and education form the basis of the only truly effective kinds of eternity that are possible to live. And a lot of the ways that people try and poke holes in or make a farce of some of those stereotypical clouds playing harps in the clouds kind of pictures of heaven is because of the fundamental lack of satisfaction that comes when you're not on that on that growing journey of of learning new things growing in your understanding of yourself and the world that you're experiencing 